All right. I don't believe that we have kids' church today, and so, but we have practice. So, kids, adios. Adios. Um, we are going to take our offering as the kids are leaving. And so, uh, as the kids head that way, our ushers are going to uh, get stuff ready for that. And uh, we're going to take our offering, and after that, we're going to delve into God's Word in the book of Judges. And so, uh, guys are going to go ahead and do that. And uh, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Judges 16. have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges. Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Judges called uh, uh, The Downward Spiral, and uh, we come to the very last section of the very last judge in the book of Judges, um, just to, so you guys know where, we're, where we are heading. Uh, obviously, next week is Easter, and so we will focus on uh, Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, resurrection. After that, uh, Charlie will be with us, and he will continue on the book of Judges, uh, chapter 17 and 18. And then when I come back, uh, we're going to wrap up uh, the book of Judges and head into uh, a book called The Song of, Solomon's and, uh, Song of, Song of Solomon, uh, about marriage and love and, and sexuality. It's going to be really good. And so uh, that's where we're heading. Uh, but this morning, we are going to be in Judges chapter 16. So if you have your text, I'd invite you to get it out with me. I want to share with you a, a quick article uh, from a, a local a paper called the Spokesman Review. And I just happened to come across this article and I, find, uh, I found it quite interesting. Uh, there is a, uh, an entertainment organization called Renaissance Entertainment Inc. And uh, Renaissance Entertainment Inc. is based out of Orlando, Florida. And they uh, specialized in um, uh, selling uh, rides, if you will, to places like Disney World and other kind of theme park kind of places. And so I was reading this article, and uh, I'd like to read it to you this morning. And I think it really speaks to the life of Samson. And so here we go. Uh, spokesman Review. Renaissance Entertainment Inc. of Orlando is marketing Ego Trip. Ego Trip, a ride about you. Ego Trip, a ride about you. The ride, which Renaissance hopes to sell to a theme park or to operate at fairs, will use riders' names, photos, and voices to create a totally personalized experience. As paparazzi snap away and adoring fans call their names, riders will, will, will be, riders will attend their own movie premieres. Ever wanted to be a movie star? Now you can be. 
They'll visit an art museum where they'll view paintings of themselves, as done by Picasso, Warhol, and Van Gogh. Ever wanted to go to an art museum and see yourself? Now you can. Uh, They'll attend a political rally where they will be urged to run for president and a sporting event where they will be praised for their athletic prowess. So ever wanted to uh, run for president or be a, a sports star? Here's your chance. Finally, they'll enjoy a ticker tape parade in their honor. Afterwards, ego-stroked riders will proceed to the gift shop where they can buy all sorts of stuff emblazoned with their image. The president, uh, John Binkowski, says this, What's everyone's favorite subject? What's everyone's favorite subject? Themselves, he says. This is taking that to the nth degree. Um, isn't that fascinating to where maybe in the, in the near future you can go to uh, Disney World or some other kind of theme park and you can have a totally specialized ride all about you with you at the center. That just boggles my mind. Uh, but I think it's very appropriate as we wrap up the life of Samson, because as we have seen before, chapter 13, Samson was born with a spiritual silver spoon in his mouth. He had every advantage spiritually. I believe he had a special calling from God. He had a special task from God to go and deliver God's people from the Philistines. He uh, spiritually was blessed with what I believe as a, to be a godly household. We see the spirit of God working early on in his life. He had a spiritual silver spoon. But last Sunday with John and I, we saw in chapters 14 and 15 that he went about squandering that spiritual silver spoon. He had what I would call a, a habit his way kind of a life. He did what he wanted. He pursued his own desires. If he, if he saw it and it looked good, then he did it. He had it his way. And I would say that this kind of ride fits Samson very well because uh, uh, Samson, his favorite subject was himself. I think he would be the first in line towards this ego trip ride. Well, this morning, as we get into chapter 16, we're going to see the final chapter uh, literally in Samson's life. And what we're going to see is that um, moving on from 14 and 15, uh, a, a sense of what I would call invincibility. We're going to see Samson having gone back and forth with the Philistines on this uh, continuing uh, revenge kick, if you will. We're going to see that Samson now really begins to assert himself. We're going to see his supernatural strength come into play like we had not before. And Samson is going to get this air of, I'm invincible. You cannot beat me. You cannot kill me. I am the man. And what we're going to see is that it's ultimately going to lead both to his downfall And to his death. And I call it the Samson Syndrome. The Samson Syndrome. And what I hope we can see this morning, I hope we can walk through the text, see how the story plays out, and then identify, there are a lot of symptoms here, but identify three symptoms, if you will, from the life of Samson that I would call the Samson Syndrome, an air of invincibility. And hopefully we can learn a few things from our life, and maybe, just maybe, we will begin to see a bit of Samson showing up in our life as well. And so if you have your text, uh, turn with me to chapter 16, and we will begin in verse 1. Uh, verses 1 through 22 is the first major section in this last chapter. And I've called it the downfall of Samson, because we are going to see um, Samson, both spiritually and physically, spiral downward, just like the nation, just like God's people, are spiraling downward, both physically and spiritually. Uh, now, the downfall of Samson, as we read in the story, is really wrapped up with two ladies. And, and we see Samson's penchant for, uh, for, for lust, for, this, for, for women, 
last week as he pursued a a pagan wife and his penchant, his lack of self-control in the area of sexuality in women is is going to become very apparent. And so his downfall is really tied in to two women. I've called the first woman the Philistine prostitute, as we'll see why in a second. And I've called the second woman the Philistine phony. And you could call her Delilah is her name. But uh, his downfall is wrapped up with a prostitute and a phony. And so let's go ahead and jump into the text in verses 1 through 3, and we will see the story of the Philistine prostitute. Uh, Go ahead and read along with me, if you will. Uh, Verse 1. Samson went down to Gaza, a a Philistine city, a deep Philistine city, deep into its territory. Samson went down uh, to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. The Gazaites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the, till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose. And he took off the doors, and he, t- and, he, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So we see the story begins in verses 1 through 3 with the Philistine prostitute. Um, there, there are a, a lot of things that I could comment on here, but because of uh, brevity here, I don't want to keep us for an hour or two or three. I want to point out a few things, uh, some important things that we see in this story. Uh, the first thing that we see is that Samson is making himself vulnerable to enemy attack. And what we see here is that Samson, it says, goes down to a city called Gaza. This was a Philistine city that was deep in the Philistine territory. So it's not like he was just going to a border town, uh, if you will. He had to travel several miles deep into enemy, enemy territory to go to the town of Gaza. And by doing so, in, in my estimation, he is making himself utterly vulnerable uh, to his enemies. But not just that, he's... He's squandering his calling. Here we see the man who is called to engage the Philistines, the Philistines in war going to the Philistine city for sex. And so we see that he is squandering his calling by going deep into the city and he's making himself vulnerable. And what we see is that Samson is going to make himself vulnerable here to his enemies and it's going to foreshadow Delilah because what we're going to see with Delilah is that once again he's going to open himself up to enemy attack. Um, just to give a bit of perspective here about what Samson did. He goes deep into enemy, enemy territory. As the story says, he supernaturally takes these gates on his back, these pretty sizable gates to this pretty sizable Philistine city, and he carries it for several miles. Um, I mean, I mean, Samson, he, he's a wanted man. At this point, he's gone back and forth with the Philistines. They want to kill him, as we see. That's why they set the ambush. And so he's going deep into enemy territory. Everyone has to be looking for him in that region. Uh, I mean, surely his, uh, his posters are on every post office in the land. And yet, brashly, 
proudly he travels deep into their territory and steals what would amount to be um, a very a very uh, significant piece of landscape the city gates were were uh, where all the business went on and so if you were to do a business deal you would meet at the city gates it was also a significant source of protection and so by him ripping off these city gates and taking them away he's humiliating them and he's taking a significant landmark and so this is what it would be for us uh, this is kind of a modern day equivalent it would be like Osama bin Laden jumping on a plane, heading down to D.C., doing, uh, touring all of the things at D.C., and then somehow, if he could, walking away with the Washington Monument and taking it back to his, his uh, hideout, if you will. That's, that's what Samson is doing here, and he is jeopardizing his, himself and his mission. For, uh, secondly, we see, obviously, the supernatural strength of Samson. Up until this point, he's done some pretty cool deeds. I mean, he's killed a lot of guys with a jawbone. I mean, some things that are, you know, not the average Joe can do, but we've not seen such, such supernatural strength until now. We see his supernatural strength, and again, it's, it's foreshadowing his death, because we all, I think, are familiar with how he dies. God gives him supernatural strength. And the walls come tumbling down. But we see his supernatural strength. But not only that, I think we see his pride here. Again, he goes deep into enemy territory. He's unfazed. He's unfettered. Um, and not only that, but he takes that which is very valuable to them. And he picks it up. And he takes it on his back. This cannot be explained other than a supernatural act of God. Uh, this is not normal. Uh, how many of you have ever seen, um, maybe on ESPN or ESPN2, the strongman competitions? Anyone ever seen that? A few of you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, the strongman competition is where they get these big, bulky, burly guys, and they have them do these this strength competition, and they, they do amazing things. Um, one, they have these really heavy pillars, and they and they have them tied to their arms, and they let the pillars go, you know, like that, and they have to hold them as long as they can. Amazing things. Uh, what they do is they, they tie the guy to a car or something big, even like a, a jet, and they have him tied to it, and they have a rope, and he pulls it like this, and he just pulls this, this incredible thing. It's amazing what these guys can do. That's, that's kind of the epitome of strength in our culture. And that can't hold a candle to what Simpson did here. It's supernatural. It's, fen- it's phenomenal. But the point that I want us to see is we see his strength and his pride. Because what the text tells us is that he takes it upon his back. And notice at the very end, in, in verse 3, he takes it and, and he carries them to the top of the hill that is in front of he- Hebron or Hebron. Hebron was not a Philistine city. Hebron was an Israelite city. And if my notes are correct, it's about 40 miles and so not only does he rip these gigantic gates and strap them on his back and say, ha ha, you can't get me. Uh, he takes him all the way to an Israelite city, 40 miles. It's, it's just unexplainable. It's phenomenal, but utterly unnecessary. Here he's using the, the, the power that the Holy Spirit is giving him not to engage the enemies, but to show off. To show how big and bad and invincible he is. And he drops it at this gate. So thirdly, this, the third thing that we see from this is not only does he make himself vulnerable, not only do we see his supernatural strength, but we see that Samson humiliates this city. He humiliates the Philistines by doing this. Again, it would be taking the Washington Monument and just stealing it. It would be utter, utterly humiliating. Uh, there are some details that I don't exactly know how they work in this story. I, I kind of think... 
Well, were they still asleep when Samson did it? Did they just happen to sleep through him ripping the gates out? I tend to think not. I think more likely were they scared to death when they saw this guy bench pressing, you know, these things. More likely. <laughs> That's probably what I think happened. Is They're like, you fight him. <laughs> I'm going to go home. Uh, but they're humiliated by it. He has taken their defense system, this monument, if you will, and he stripped it. He humiliates them. And, and this is how this story is connected with the story of Delilah. Because what we see here is that they gather around and they want to kill him. Do you notice that? That's their intent. He's their enemy. They want to kill him. But what we see with Delilah when they come to bribe her, they don't want to kill him anymore. At least not yet. They want to humiliate him. They want to seek revenge. They just don't want him dead They want it to hurt. They want it to be embarrassing. They want to do to him what he did to them. And so we see the link with the next story is that this intensifies and provides incentive to utterly humiliate Samson. And so we've seen the story of the first woman, the Philistine prostitute. Uh, Samson, again, endangers himself and creates a deep desire for revenge. Moving on to the second woman I call the Philistine phony. We know her as Delilah. Uh, What we see in verses 4 through 22 is the story of Delilah. The second woman is introduced, the infamous, the infamous Delilah. She's introduced to us in verses 4 through 5. So let's read, let's read about her in verses 4 through 5. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. Again, a valley in Philistine territory. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, so that we may bind him, notice, to humble him. And we will each... Each give you uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. And so we see the story progressing. Uh, Samson uh, not only makes himself vulnerable to enemy attack by going into the city, but now he falls in love. And as they say, love is blind, (laughs) is it not? And Samson, I think, to a large degree is blinded uh, by her because it's very clear. Samson loves her, but she loves money. (laughs) Samson loves her, and she doesn't love him. She loves money. Uh, some believe, and uh, I think this is a possibility, that the name Delilah is from the, uh, an Arabic root. We don't really know the root of her name. Some suggest that it's from the Arabic, which means flirtatious. And uh, that would be fitting, would it not? They say seduce her. That would make sense that she would be a flirtatious kind of a woman who would seduce Samson into giving up this kind of information. He loved her. She loved the money. When you look at this, what happens is, notice four Philistine lords come. And the term lord describes... A, uh, a higher up. This would kind of be like a king, four Philistine kings. So these are the top-notch guys in the Philistine governmental system. And so the big wigs from D.C., if you will, come to her and they make her this offer. They say, seduce him. Uh, we need to find out how in the world he carried that thing on his back. And we want to humiliate him. And so would you do it for us? They don't threaten. They don't threaten to burn her. They bribe her. And uh, she takes the bribe. Um, what they are offering is 550 times what would be the average annual wage. 550 times an annual average wage. And so today, let's just say if an average annual wage is $25,000, they would be offering her $15 million. 
this is no small sum. And so she takes that, and what we see next is um, a fourfold attempt by Delilah to draw out this information. She wants to find out, how are you so strong? Why are you so strong? And we may be asking that question ourselves. How in the world, I mean... The spirit is upon him, but how is he so strong? And so what we see is she goes to him and there's this dialogue and four times she asks him. And on the fourth attempt, he finally gives in. And so we're going to read this account and we're just going to read it uh, straight through verses 6 through 20. Um, But before we do that, you're probably probably familiar with that interaction. And so the question that's kind of been lingering in my mind that I want to ask and hopefully answer is, um, is Samson just dumb? I mean, is he just really dumb? You know what I mean? Because you read the text and you're like, come on, man. You know, she's like, tell me, how can I kill you? And he's like, well, I'll tell you, you know. It's, it's, it's like either one, he's really stupid to play along with this game. And he just thinks, oh, it's some kind of game. We're playing, here comes the Philistines. Oh, let me show you how strong I am. You know, he's playing a game with her. That's, and he's stupid. And he doesn't recognize her intent is one option. I think a better option is the second option, which he knows exactly what's going on. He's not dumb. He knows exactly what she's trying to do. He's figured it out. And he thinks he's invincible. He is so proud. And I think the incident of the carrying this thing on his back has led him to believe that no one could ever capture him. No one could ever do him in. I'll play along with you. I love you. But Samson is a gamer. He likes riddles. He likes to play games. And so I think he's just playing with her. And he thinks that she can't get it out of him. And what we're going to find out is that Samson does not have the strength or the self-control that he thinks he does. And so that, I think, is what is going on here. So let's read this chunk together, verses 6 through 20. And we will see the Philistine phony at work. Starting in verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please, tell me where your great strength lies and how you may be bound so that one may subdue you. <laughs> Seriously, Samson. Samson said to her, if, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound, bound him with them. So he's playing along. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So attempt number one, no problem. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and you have told me lies, which is true. Please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and become like any other man. By the way, this has happened before. They tried to tie him with new strings. The men of Judah, if you remember, in chapter 15, it didn't work so well, and he knew it. Verse 12, so Delilah took, took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arm like a thread. No problem. Then Delilah, attempt number three, said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Still true. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and become like any other man. So while he slept... 
Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Notice here, he's getting weaker, is he not? He's getting closer to the source of his strength, which is his hair. She's wearing him down, I think. Verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? I think here she's getting to the heart of the matter. She's saying, You say you love me. You say you love me, Samson. And he did. But you have mocked me. And I think that is going to do it. You have mocked me these three times. And you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Ironic. And he told her all his heart and said to her, so we hear the truth, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So he gives it up. Then Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. Payday. She, uh, she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, And this is tragic, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Tragic, tragic statements. A couple things that uh, I want us to see here. Um, ironic, just like he gave in to the urgings and the naggings of his first wife, remember, to tell him the riddle. In the same way, he does so with Delilah, and he comes clean about the source of his strength. It's ironic because the text says that she nagged him to death. And that is going to be true. She did nag him to death. He's going to die because he gave in to it. No self-control. Uh, we learn an interesting thing here. We do discover the truth. What is the source of his great strength? He identifies it for us. And it is the sliver, the sliver of obedience that was left in Samson's life. The sliver of obedience that he had left. Remember, there were three things in a Nazarite vow. Touching dead bodies, drinking wine, and not cutting your hair. How many of those had Samson already broken? Dose. Two. And so he is hanging on to this last bit of the vow. He's being pursuing obedience in that. And he says, he, he realizes this. This is the source of his strength. He's clinging to this last bit of the vow. Now answer me this. Did Samson give a rip at all, as far as we can tell, previously about breaking his vows? No. We don't have any indication that he cared at all about the Lord or the Lord's plans. All that he cared about was that he was... Invincible, And so he's clinging to this, and we discover that is the source of his strength. And so we see the story concludes in verses 21 through 20. The, the downfall of Samson is about to be complete. Verses 21 and 22. 
And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, which was the city where it all began, and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And so the downfall of Samson is complete. There are plenty of ironies here. Samson has his his two eyes gouged out. And it's ironic because it was his eyes, his lust, the lust of the eyes for women that got him there in the first place. And he has his eyes plucked out. Not only that, but he ends up being a slave, doing the work of a slave and a woman in that society, grinding at the mill, and he's doing it at the very city whose gates he took up. The irony, how the great has fallen. The third irony of the text is that now he is working at the mill, he's grinding grain. And remember, what was it that he burned up before? It was their grain, was it not? And so the one who destroyed the enemy's grain is now helping them to eat it. Uh, The irony is great, and the downfall of Samson uh, is tragic. But verse 22 leaves us with a ray of hope because something begins to grow. His hair begins to grow. I don't know. if If I were the Philistines and he told the truth about his hair, I would keep that thing bicked every day. You know what I mean? I would get the, the I would get the razor every day and bring out the shaving cream and be like, "Here we go, dude." <laughs> Daily shaving. But for some reason, uh, the Philistines are portrayed as uh, stupid and ignorant and proud, possibly, and they they let it grow. They say, well, "You're you're a slave. We have you in our possession. There's no way that you can do anything to us." Oh, but. He can, and he will, and there is hope. And so we move from the downfall of Samson to the death of Samson in verses 23 through 31. The story ends both with tragedy and triumph. There's tragedy and there's triumph in the life of Samson. And so uh, essentially what we see is that the Philistines have him, and there's going to be a party, um, as they would in that world. You had a military victory of some sort, and you honor your god. You honor your deity. And so their deity is a deity called Dagon, and he is, ironically, the god of the grain. And so uh, they are going to offer a, a festival, a party, and it's, it's a big deal. Only the best of the best are, are going to be at this party. The lords, the kings, all of the higher-ups in the administration are going to be at this party, and they are going to celebrate and offer thanks to their god and seek to humiliate Samson. And we see this happening in verses 23 through 27. So let's read that together. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. That's not, that's not true, is it? Yahweh has given Samson through his disobedience into their hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And so the tension heightens. Is Yahweh, is God going to let other people be uh, praised instead of him? No. In the Bible, when people give praise and credit and honor to anything other than God, he doesn't take kindly to that, and he's not going to anymore. Moving on, 25. And when their hearts were merry... Most likely they were drunk. They said, call Samson that he may entertain us. 
So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the, feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women. So on the roof, these are bleacher seats, who looked on while Samson entertained them. And so here is what is going on. Um, they're having a party. They're offering sacrifice. There's probably alcohol involved. And they're like, hey, it's a party. Let's get our guy and humiliate him, just like he did us. And so the text says that he entertained them. We don't really exactly know what that means. I mean, I don't think he was a comedian. You know what I mean? I don't think he went out there and gave his, uh, a comedic overture, but pardon the bad comedy. He's going to bring down the house. <laughs> um, I think probably, I know, bad joke. Sorry. I couldn't help it. Um, probably what's going to happen here is they probably strip him naked. When you were going to humiliate your enemy, you stripped them naked and you brought them out in front of everyone. And possibly because he couldn't see, they poked and prodded and kind of, you know, made fun of him because he couldn't see. This is probably what, what was happening, um, which again is highly ironic because the guy who really liked to get naked um, ends up un, uh, unintentionally, involuntarily doing this. Uh, the story concludes then with um, the setup. He's in between the pillars and we see that this is foreshadowing. He says, put me there. Uh, and then we see in verse 28 um, that Samson is going to pray to God, the second recorded prayer in the whole uh, story of Samson. And it's not exactly a pure prayer, but it's a prayer of faith. And God's going to answer that. So let's go ahead and read that in verses 28 through 31. And we see the story conclude. Then, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he, then he uh, bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all of the people who were in it. So the, dead whom he, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers, and the story wraps up, then his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eschatol in the tomb of Manoah his father. And he had judged Israel for 20 years. And so the story of Samson uh, concludes in this way. We see, I think, triumph and tragedy here. Um, we still don't, we don't see that Samson, in my opinion, ever gets over the, the Samson syndrome. He's still proud to the very end. He is still seeking revenge. Do you notice the motive behind his request? They, they gouged out my eyes. I want to get revenge. God, would you do this? Yeah, it was selfish, self-motivated. But it was a prayer of faith, and God answered that, and he brought down the house. Um, again, this, would, this, would, this is a big deal, and, and this, is the, this is the triumph of the story. What, originally, when he was born, he was supposed to begin to deliver Israel from Philistine oppression, right? That, that was his task. And he squanders his life. He doesn't really do it very well, but in his death, he actually fulfills that. He begins to do it in his death. 
by, uh, by killing all of these people. And so we see the triumph. And this would be a big deal. The lords of the Philistines were, were there. So this would be like, if I could, if I could describe this in uh, a bad scenario, but this is what it would be like. Um, it would be like um, all, of the, uh, uh, all of our government leaders being in D.C. and a huge nuclear blast goes off and kills all of the leadership of the country. That's what Samson did. All of the higher-ups were there. All of the leaders of uh, the Philistines, probably all of the military leaders were there. And he just, he really makes a dent into God's enemy. And so there's triumph there. It's what God had told him to do, and he never did it until he died, which is a triumph, but it's also tragedy because we see the, we see the comment that he killed more in his death than his life. And that's not a that's not a good thing. That's not a compliment to Samson. What it points out is that he squandered his calling. He squandered his calling because he should have killed more in his life than in his death. But it's just the opposite is true. And so he squanders his calling. So we see the triumph and the tragedy of Samson. So what I want to conclude with is this. I think we see three symptoms, if you will, to the Samson syndrome. There are a lot of symptoms in Samson's life. I've picked three here. The first symptom that I think we... Man, I tell you what, I can see Samson in myself. I think you can see Samson in yourself here. Uh, The first one is his lack of self-control. When you look at the life of Samson, in particular, uh, in this last chapter, what you see is that it it lacks any semblance of self-control. We see a digression here. Remember when he went to, uh, to marry his wife, he went through the, the proper processes, he had a wedding, and he got mad, he runs off, and then he goes back to her because he wants to consummate the marriage. He, 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 he waited. Even in a pagan culture, he waited uh, to consummate his marriage. That didn't work out so well for him, did it? It didn't work out. And so here, we, he, he digressed. He's like, fine. I'm going to go to a prostitute. And so he does. No self-control. Not only that, but this becomes very evident in the interplay with Delilah. He thinks that he has a self-control, and he doesn't. And she hammers and hammers and hammers, and he does not have it. And so I want to ask myself and you, do you have this symptom? The symptom of lack of self-control. Maybe it's a quick temper that's triggered with something, uh, whether it's a people or, or your work or a job or a comment that's made. A quick temper and no self-control. Maybe it's just particular people with you. You know that they set you off. You know when you're around them, your, uh, <laughs> your emotions are a little bit raised and you have no self-control with them when they say that thing or when they do that thing. Maybe it's with your kids when they're whining and out of control and not doing what you want and your house is just a madhouse and the self-control is just, it's just not there like in Samson. Maybe like last week, maybe it's in the area of eating. Man, I, I struggle with this sometimes. I, I like having extra bites. I like having dessert every night. My self-control in this area, I'm like Samson. I... I need God to, to do a work in this. Maybe it's in the area of spiritual disciplines. Um, at one point, you were pretty good at it, waking up, reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, um, whatever, what, uh, many other disciplines, fasting, spending time with God's people. But the discipline, the self-control to do that, it, it's just lacking. Maybe like Samson, many people in our culture struggle with self-control in the area of sexuality. We hit this last week, so I'm not going to hammer it hard. Um, man, if you're in the grasp of porn, you have no self-control. Maybe hard porn or even soft porn, movies, TV, 
you can see a lot of bad things when you turn on the tube at night. Um, whatever it is, if, if, if you see yourself and Samson, lack of self-control, we see that it leads to disaster and death. And the same is true for you and I when we exemplify this in our life. Uh, the, the second, I think, symptom of the Samson syndrome uh, is... Uh, is this, a disregard for God's call. A disregard for God's call. And what I mean by that is this. Samson had a holy calling. He was to engage God's enemy in battle, and he was to begin to, uh, to deliver them. Now, obviously, you and I, uh, in this age, we don't, uh, as believers in Jesus, we're not called to, uh, to, to war against God's enemies necessarily, but we do have a calling. We do have a purpose. We do have a mission. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and become a believer, you are a missionary. You have a task. You have a calling. And my fear is that we, me, much like Samson, we disregard that. We just don't care. We'd rather do what we want. We'd rather pursue our desires. We'd rather spend time with our family. We'd rather spend time at sporting events. We'd rather spend time uh, at the house. We'd rather spend time entertaining ourselves. And I'm guilty in this regard. Um, And none of those things are bad inherently. But if we pursue, and we have to ask ourselves, are we pursuing God's call in our life to make disciples to pray for people who don't know Jesus, to have time uh, that you intentionally set aside, to have spiritual conversations with them, to engage people in your community. That's our calling, to make a difference in this life for eternity. But when we get so caught up in the things of this life, like Samson does, we disregard our calling. Brothers and sisters, we can very much be like Samson, squandering our God-given call. Third, We see Samson pushing the limits of grace. We see Samson pushing the limits of grace. This is very evident. When you put the story together, what you see is a guy who wants to disobey God as much as he can, but still maintain God's blessing. You see that? He is a man who says, I will break all of God's commandments, all of God's laws, but not just one. I'm going to hold on to one. One sliver of obedience God, if you'll bless me, if you'll give me strength, if you'll bless my life, I will hold on to this one area of obedience. But the others I'm going to squander. And he pushes the limits of God's grace. He pushes the limits of God's grace. And so, do you have the symptom of the Samson syndrome here? Do you push the limits of God's grace in your life? I, As many of you know, I did student ministry. Uh, before uh, I came here, and uh, I love working with students. And one of the most popular questions that I got working with students is, where is the line in a, in a relationship sexually? Where is the line? That's what they would call it. And I would say, there is no line. Holiness is the goal. <laughs> Holiness is what you pursue. There's no line. <laughs> because what they were really wanting to do, right, was for me to say, here's the line. This is the act. This is what it is. And they're going to, you know what they're going to do? You know what they're going to do. They're going to get as close to that line as they possibly can. And sometimes maybe even go further. Because they want to know, how much can I sin? How much can I disobey? How much can I get away with and still be considered right in God's eyes? And still, God bless my life. And folks, we do this in a, a smattering of ways. How badly can I treat my wife and God, you'll still bless my business. How much can I ignore her? How much can I verbally um, not treat her well? How much uh, can I uh, just uh, not uh, take for granted all that she does? How, mu- how much can I get away with 
And God, I still want you to bless, bless my business. How much can I gossip about my brothers and sisters in Christ and still maintain a Christian reputation? How much can I do it without hurting my reputation, God? I still want your blessing. I still want a reputation. How little can I give to the church and still say that I care about God's work? Because I care about God's work. I care what he's doing here and around the world. <laughs> what's, the, what's the minimum that I can do and still say that I care about what God's doing? How much can I drink without being technically drunk? How, much, how, mu- how many can I have? How, how close can I get to that line? I'm not opposed to alcohol per se. But I'm very opposed to drunkenness because that's what the Bible says. And so we, we push that. We push it. God, I, I push the limits of grace. And we do this knowingly and unknowingly in our life. I want to close with this. Some closing thoughts. We're going to have our musicians come up. We're going to sing. We're going to, we're going to meditate. I'm going to encourage you to pray, to repent if you need to, to be encouraged to pray, whatever it is. But there is a silver lining to the story of Samson. Samson's story has kind of been a doom and gloom one, I have to admit. He's the worst judge. He's the last judge. That's what we expect. There's a silver lining here, and it's this. Turn with me if you have your Bibles open. It's not on the screen. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews and flip to the New Testament with me. Uh, The book of Hebrews is towards the end of your New Testament. Um, And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, real quick, after Philemon. We see Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Many of you may be familiar with this chapter. It's called the, we call it the Hall of Faith. And it's where the author of Hebrews lists all of these people who uh, had great faith. And God was pleased with them. And God used them. And lo and behold, we're going to see some infamous characters in the Hall of Faith. Uh, 32 through 34. I'll just go ahead and read it together. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, and Samson, here's our guy, Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and the prophets, and this is what they did, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and here's the one I want us to focus on, because I think it's referring to Samson, were made strong out of weakness. Isn't, isn't that what happened with Samson? Was made strong out of weakness? Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The point is this. Samson is no ideal person for us. We, we don't want to mimic him in too many ways. <laughs> but he's in the hall of faith. God puts him in the hall of faith as one who had great faith and who actually accomplished something for him. He's in scripture. In positive light, this should be really encouraging to us because Samson lived for himself. He did what he wanted to do. And I tell you what, maybe that's you this morning. You're sitting here and you're listening. You're like, man, I'm Samson. I'm a believer. I place my faith in Jesus, but I do what I want. I live how I want. I'm not useful for God. I've gone and done all sorts of things and I've, I've fallen away. And the good news, the silver lining of the dark cloud of Samson is that if God can use Samson... God can use you, and God can lead you to repentance and faith, and he can, he can use you in spite of yourself, but he wants to use you cooperatively. Samson made the hall of faith. In closing, what we see, every scripture in some way, shape, or form points uh, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the hero of the story. He always should be. We see, um, I think we see similarities between Samson and Jesus. As John pointed out last Sunday, there are a lot of differences between Samson and Jesus. Don't get me wrong. 
But there are similarities too, and it points us towards the need of a righteous king, a righteous judge who always does what is right, who can save us from our sins and enable us to not have a lack of self-control, to not disregard God's call, to not push the limits of grace. Samson, his birth was foretold by an angel. Sound familiar? Jesus' birth was foretold by an angel. Samson was conceived in a miraculous way. Jesus was conceived in a very miraculous way. Samson was rejected by his own people. Remember, they wanted to turn him over. Jesus was rejected by his own people. Samson was betrayed by his friend and lover, Delilah, for money. Sound familiar? Jesus was betrayed by a close confidant for money. Samson was handed over to some pagans who killed him. Jesus was handed over to the Romans and they crucified him. Samson's saving work, the epitome of his saving work, was seen in his death. Jesus' epitome of his saving work, dying for the sins of humanity to be resurrected three days later, bearing the weight of my sin and your sin, was done in his death. And so I want to conclude with this. I'm going to ask the musicians to come on forward. Come on forward right now. I want to ask you this as they prepare to lead us in a time of meditation and prayer. Do you know Jesus? Have you come to know him personally? Not know about him. Do you know him? Have you trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection for your sins? Have you been transformed by him? Are you being transformed by him? Because everything that we've set up until this point, it doesn't really matter. You can't do those things without the one whom Samson points to, which is Jesus. So we're going pl- to we're we're play and ask that you meditate, pray, let God work in your hearts, and then as the music uh, plays, I invite you to stand and, and respond in song.